You're listening to a message from Third Church in Richmond, Virginia, where we believe we are called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. To learn more about Third or how you can get involved with our community, please check out our website, thirdrva.org. That's T-H-I-R-D-R-V-A dot org. Thanks for listening. A reading from Revelation 21 and 22. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. The Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know, as our news feeds and our daily lives are just consumed and overtaken with news about the global pandemic and vaccines, we easily forget that there are actually other things going on in the world. (laughs) Uh, And one of those things one of those terrible things that I've been reading about recently is the the horrible civil war that is happening in the country of Ethiopia. Um, There is a newly elected government that is now in civil war with leaders of the old toppled government, and there is a terrible war, a civil war that is now turning into humanitarian disaster um, as gangs of gum-wielding, machete-wielding men Uh, begin to roam the countryside and kill at will. Uh, Almost 50,000 Ethiopians have fled as refugees to the neighboring country of Sudan, and many of these families and people are living just in these refugee camps in dire conditions at the edge of survival. Uh, People have lost homes, they've lost jobs, they've lost families. Uh, Mothers are weeping for lost children as they fled from their towns, uh, fleeing from uh, uh, murderous gangs. Um, and the refugees are desperately trying to survive by making bits of food out of sorghum and trying to make tents out of grasses. And it is, it is truly a desperate situation. And this week I heard a story of a young man uh, living in the middle of one of these refugee camps. And he is an artist. And his name is Fitzum Kidanamerium. Uh, and Fitzum uh, spends his time in this camp making small sculptures out of rocks. 
And in this interview that I heard, um, he was showing to the interviewer one of the sculptures that he made. And on one side, it has a face of a lion. And on the other side, it has the face of a woman. And this is what he said. He said, quote, the woman is forgiving and respectful. The lion, like warring men, lash out at the slightest touch. And he said that he spent hours sculpting this rock, dreaming of a different world where humans behave less like lions. And throughout history, it's the, it's the artists and the poets uh, and the songwriters who often help us dream of a different world. You know, because most of us who are not artists, we are consumed with the world as it is. But what artists often do is they help us see the world as it could be. They, they stir our imaginations to help us see something beyond the raw realities of life. And so people like Fitzsum are not just doing art, they are sculpting hope. They're cultivating our imagination for a future that is different than the present. Now, the cynical among us might say, well, you know, be practical, man. Um, this is a false hope. It's an imaginary hope. You should be spending your time helping your family foraging for food instead of chipping away at stones. But I would argue with you, John the seer, John the writer of the book of Revelation would disagree with you because he too finds himself in a hopelessly desperate situation, exiled on a rock. He too is writing to those who find themselves in desperate, horrific, on the edge situations. And John too is an artist. And with this book, this piece of art, this consummate, brilliant piece of artistry, John has harnessed all of his creativity, all of his biblical knowledge, and all of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to offer to his friends a piece of art that is holding out a vision of a different world. Because this is what he knows more than anything else. This is what his friends need. And what do you think it is that we need? What is it that we need more than anything else if we're going to persevere in our own ups and downs, in our own suffering, in our own sadness, in our own experiences of, of death? Well, what we need uh, is hope. And not, not a vague hope, not a pie-in-the-sky hope, but a concrete hope of a different world. And this is what John offers to us in these final two chapters in this astounding book. So let's look at this picture of, of this promised new creation and see how it shapes our present. So what, what is our future, friends? What is our future? What, what is our eternity? What, what awaits us in eternal life? Now, in Revelation 21 and 22, we get some of the clearest pictures that the Bible gives us of what we can expect when it comes to eternal life. And this is so important. In fact, the biblical scholar N.T. Wright uh, comments that the most common misconception that people have when it comes to Christianity is the nature of heaven, the nature of heaven. And I can attest to that personally. I mean, when I was a kid, and some of you kids watching, you might feel this way too. When I was a kid, I didn't want to go to heaven because as far as I could tell, heaven sounded a whole lot like church. And I didn't like church. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 uh, and, it was, and it sounded even worse because, you know, church was only an hour, but heaven was eternity. 
And the idea of like sitting around on like a cloud playing a harp and, you know, wearing some itchy choir robe. I mean, this was just this idea of misery. I mean, this is, I did not want that at all. Well, over the years, um, I have come to realize that so much of what I thought about when I thought about heaven, and I think what many people think about when they think about heaven, is not actually informed by the Bible at all but it's actually shaped way more by pop culture and frankly, by Platonic Greek philosophy, which was, we can talk about that another time, was Gnostic and dualistic, separated the spiritual from the material. Now, if we look carefully at our text, what we see, the, 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 the biblical view of eternal life is far different than this concept that we often carry. So let's look at it, verse one and two. John says this, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Now, immediately, friends, we see this massive challenge to our typical conceptions of what heaven is. This myth of heaven is this place where, you know, we will be whisked away as misty, disembodied souls, where we live in some cloudy place far away from the material difficulties of an earthy universe or, a, or the, the, the place that we once knew as earth, what we see from this scripture is that that indeed is a myth. Instead, what we see here is not us going up to heaven, but what? We see heaven coming down to us. We see the holy city representing God's kingdom and God's community of saints actually coming down out of heaven from God. You see that? If you don't hear anything that I say today, hear this, that Heaven is not about us going up. It is about God and his presence and all that comes with it coming down, down into this world to renew it. And then God himself speaks, the God, the father, who we've not actually heard speak since Revelation chapter five. God says in verse five, behold, I am making all things new. Note that God does not say I am making all new things. You know, he does not say, you know what? I'm just so tired of this broken down, beat down, sin-scarred world. I'm just done with these people. I'm scrapping the whole thing in the dust beast, dustbin of history and I'm starting fresh. No, God says, I am making all things new. In other words, I, I am, he is coming into this world to renew it, transform it, and to finish the project that he has begun in Jesus. And so what that means is at least this, that there will be both a continuity and a discontinuity between this current creation and the new creation that is to come. You know, if you buy an old beat down, run down house like Sarah and I did in 2005 and you pour a bunch of money in it and make it new again, is this, is, when you look at it, is it a new house or is it the old house? Yes, uh, it is. You know, it's the old house, but it is altogether new. And we also see this in the person of Jesus. When you study the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus in the gospels and you see him in his resurrected body, well, is he the same Jesus that he was prior to the resurrection? Yes, he's the same person. He's the same ethnicity. He even still has the scars on his body from the crucifixion. He does the things he did with the disciples. He sits down, he cooks fish and eats with them and drinks with them. He is the same man. And yet... He is altogether different. He is a transformed, glorified entity, so different and new, in fact, that sometimes the disciples have a difficult time recognizing him. 
And so what we see is that the new creation that God will bring about will be actually this world, this world that we know and love, and yet it will be altogether transformed, altogether new, as God raises creation itself from destruction to decay, as Paul says in Romans 8, and purges creation from all that is evil. And so what does this mean exactly? I'm not sure. But we're given some wonderful hints here of what this new creation will be like. Look with me at the text. You can see how earthy, how material it is. In fact, um, one theologian said, Christianity is the most material of all religions because it sees our future hope as such an earthy, material thing. Look, this is not describing clouds or some misty paradise. It is describing a city, a city. And a city is a place of human activity and human labor. It is a place of beauty and art and architecture and food and drink. The city is a place of economic exchange and civic involvement and trade. Uh, a city is a place of culture and complexity. So if you look at verses 24, uh, which was not in our reading, but if you have your Bible, look at that with me. It says, I think I have it on the screen. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into the city. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. And so what this is saying is the best of human culture will be incorporated into the new city. All that is good in economics and cultures of the nations will actually find a place in this new city of God. And it's a place, as we see, where the whole diversity of the nations will be incorporated. God's vision for a multi-ethnic humanity that has been his vision since Genesis 12 is fulfilled as all the nations and languages and ethnicities of the peoples of the nations this will be found there. This is an amazing city. And perhaps even more than what will be there, John focuses on what will not be there. You see that? Verse two, let's look at what not will be there. Verse two, there will no longer be any sea. Now, don't worry if you love the beach and if you love to sunbathe. Uh, long walks on the beach, who well, I'm sure will be in the new creation. I'm, I'm quite certain that there will be bodies of water in the new creation. Remember, John is a poet. His love of symbolism. In the ancient times, the sea represented chaos and disorder, all that was scary and terrifying about our world. Remember, the monsters, the beasts came from the sea. And so what John is saying is in this new world that is to come, it will be a world of total safety and security. There will be no monsters there. Nothing to terrify, nothing that can harm you. You will be completely safe in God's new world. No see. Verse four, he says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Friends, can you imagine? Now, how, how many tears have we witnessed, even just in the last nine months? How many tears have you cried in the last nine months? How much death have we witnessed, even in the last nine months? I mean, you know, now we know that there are more people dying daily from COVID that died at, at 9-11 or at Pearl Harbor. I mean, it is death upon death, many days to come. So much death, so much pain. And, and, and some of you know the pain of death personally and acutely. I mean, even some of you recently have lost a sibling. You've lost a parent. Uh, you've lost a spouse I know some people who've even lost a child. And there are certain deaths uh, that you never recover from. You know, like a, like a hole in the middle of a tree in which the tree just 
grows around it for the rest of the days. You, you will carry this wound. You will carry these tears right into the last of your final days. But God says, I will wipe those tears away. I will heal your life. I will heal the whole. A world is coming in which there are no more death, no more tears, no more pain. Can you imagine, friends, our aching bodies racked with cancer and chronic pain and arthritis will be healed. Our, our minds, so many of our minds are tormented by depression and mental illness and neurological pathologies and diseases. These minds will be restored. These so, so many of our souls that are just bound up in shame and fear and anxiety and guilt, our souls made right. A new world, a new life, new bodies, a new healed creation, no death, no sorrow, no pain, no tears. And then perhaps most significantly of all, John observes that verse 22, there is no temple in the city. Now, all cities in the ancient world had temples. That was just part of a, it was usually right in the middle of the city, the most important part of the city. And John as a good Jew would have known the importance of the temple. The temple was the most important building in Jewish history, the place where God and his people met Together, why no temple? Well, if you have your Bibles, you can see in verse 15 and 17, there's this funny little section where, that we didn't read where an angel takes a measuring stick. It must have been quite a measuring stick. And he measures out the length, width, and height of this city. And it says that he measured it and it was a massive cube, 12,000 stadia long, which is about 1,400 miles, 12,000 stadia wide and 12,000 stadia high. Now, this is a impossibly <laughs> high, high city. I'm not an architect, but I'm pretty sure this is an architectural impossibility. <laughs> the Everest is only five and a half miles high. This is a 1,400 mile high <laughs> city, 1,400 miles wide, 14 miles deep. John, as the master biblical theologian he is, is wanting to trigger our imagination so that we would immediately think of the other important cube in the scriptures. And those of you who know your Old Testament, do you know what that cube is? I know you know, John Daniel. It's the Holy of Holies, the Holy of Holies, the place uh, where God met with his people. John is trying to make it plain, as he says very clearly in verse 22, the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the city's temple. The new city is the whole, the whole city is the Holy of Holies. There's no longer any need for the physical temple because God's glorious presence is now filling the whole world. This is why it's described as a new heaven and a new earth because currently those two realms of God's creation, heaven and earth, our dwelling place and God's dwelling place are separated. But in the new creation, they will be merged. A new heaven and a new earth where God will fill the whole world eternally. And just the other day, I met with a a young man, and, and he said, you know, I, I, I know that I'm supposed to believe that God loves me, and I, people tell me that God loves me, but how do I know that God, God, I can't see him, I can't walk with him, I can't see him face to face. And so many of us have that experience. I mean, I, I know what he's talking about. I mean, I have moments where I sense God's love and his presence, but I mean, honestly, can I be totally honest with you? There's a whole lot of times where I feel his absence, and I just... Don't know. And here's this promise. And it says in 21 verse three, God's dwelling place is now among the people. 
and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. This is what we remain for. This is what we lost in Eden. This is the hole that we all carry, every human being that will never be filled by God alone, a longing for God to know God, to walk with God, to, to dwell with God, to see God face to face. And right here, the promise says the day is coming. It is coming soon when God will give us that world. So you can see, Here in Revelation 21, we are getting an astonishing vision of the future, a new creation, a new city, a new recreated world. This is hope on the grandest scale possible. I don't know what you thought you were looking forward to, but I promise you the biblical hope is bigger than what you thought. It is hope that includes not just you, but your body. And not just your body, but, but commerce and work and art and culture and cities and nations and animals and trees and mountains in a million ways. God will gather what has been scattered. He will rebuild what has been broken. He will, he, he will restore what has been emptied by centuries of evil and waste and fraud and injustice. In a million ways, he will put right what is wrong with our world. And this is such a vision of, of such glory and such beauty, such astonishing goodness that when we are there, friends, it will feel like you have never tasted happiness before. When we are there, all of your pain and all of your sorrow and all of the suffering that you carry and that you will carry will feel inconsequential compared to this eternal joy. It's like C.S. Lewis wrote in The Last Battle. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Now that's hope. A new city, a renewed creation where we once again will dwell in shalom in a restored world, dwelling with God forever. So what? Okay, that's our future. So what? What difference does that make for today? What difference does that make for your life tomorrow? Well, gosh, there's so many things I could say here. I could preach for hours about this, and I won't, promise. Um, But what I just want to simply note here is that as we said earlier, God on the throne announces this in verse five. Behold, I am making all things new. Note, God does not say, I will one day, one day, real far off, one day, make all things new. He says, I will, I, he says, I am making. That's present progressive tense. I am making all things new. And what we know, friends, is that he is. God has already risen Jesus, his son, from the dead. Jesus Christ is already, like, 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 like when you taste an amazing appetizer at a wedding reception and you know that the banquet is sitting in the next room and your mouth begins to salivate. We know that Jesus is the foretaste, the appetizer of God's coming new creation, that he is right now sitting in heaven as the promise that that new creation is coming and he is the beginning of it. And we know that God in and through Jesus and the spirit that he's put in us has planted an imperishable seed of his new creation in the old soil of this broken world. We know the new creation has started. And it started in Jesus already. And now you, by receiving Jesus and his spirit into your life, are already beginning to experience the power of the new creation inside you and in the community of faith. See, we don't have to wait for eternity to begin. We're living in it now. We can begin to taste it now. I I just threw together this little Venn diagram for you. It's not very complicated. (laughs) 
but we, you know, we, are, we are living in the old creation. And yet in and through Jesus and his resurrection, the new creation is already breaking in through the spirit. And so we live in that little overlap of the ages in which we suffer and strive against the old creation, the rebellion and the brokenness all around us and within us. And yet we taste that new creation already and we know it is coming. And so this is why we know that God is already in the business of making things new. People, communities, cultures, creation. This is why our vision statement as a church says, called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. Because we know that this new creation is coming and that through Jesus, this new work has already started and now we have an amazing privilege of participating with him in that work. You could say this, that mission is simply partnering with Jesus in making all things new. That's all that mission is. And this impacts so many things. It impacts how we take care of our bodies and how we care for the earth and the creation under our feet. It affects how we understand our everyday work and labor, that in and through our jobs, we can participate in helping to create redemptive culture that points to God's ultimate renewal of all things. This impacts our work of justice and mercy as we work towards and with against those places in which tears and the curse is felt most acutely. And it affects our work of reconciliation in which we begin to already model and seek that diverse and multi-ethnic community that is coming and that will be there in that new city. Our future shapes our present in every way possible. But perhaps more than anything else, our future shapes our capacity to daily choose hope to daily choose hope. Because what we believe about the future makes all the difference with our present. Imagine two men, both have to serve a 10-year prison sentence. And the day they are walking into their cell, the beginning of that 10 years, one man is told, your wife and your children are dead. And the other man is told, your wife and your children will be waiting for you at the gates the day you're released. Well, I, can, I promise you that those two men will experience every day of those 10 years very differently. What you believe about the future makes all the difference for your present. And so John is writing to a group of people who find themselves in a desperate situation, who are living with constant threat. Persecution is ramping up. Death is a daily reality. They're filled with constant fear and anxiety and uncertainty. Some of them are giving into the pressure and compromising. Others are giving into the anxiety and despairing. And so what does John offer them in the very end of his letter? What does he offer them? Hope, a vision of the future, a vision that is so real and concrete and powerful and vivid that it, it reframes their present experience to give them the hope and the capacity to choose hope daily and to endure. As Paul says in Romans 8, our present suffering are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed. And friends, I would just want to say this to you. If this vision of the future could do this for these people that were literally being sawn in half and thrown to the lions, think what this hope could do for you in your daily sufferings, in your daily ups and downs, in your daily struggles and striving. Get a hold of this, brothers and sisters, and you can face anything. Get a hold of this hope and you can face anything and not just face it, you can face it with joy. So let me just close with this story. In 1947, Harvard University invited this man, 
uh, Howard Thurman, who is a famous African-American um, scholar and pastor and philosopher. They invite, Harvard invited Dr. Thurman to give a series of lectures on the African-American spirituals of the 19th century. And Dr. Thurman lectured for several days on the spiritual songs of these slave communities that had come out of the 19th century. Many, many of these songs focus on heaven uh, and focus on the world that is to come. And in one of the lectures, this is what Dr. Thurman said. He said, quote, for these communities, heaven was as intensely real as the facts of their own experience. Here at last, they sang of a place where the slave was counted in and was given dignity. So heaven was as real to them as their own suffering, as real to them as their pain, as their chains. Well, after um, the lecture in the Q&A, uh, one of these young, enlightened Harvard students raised his hand and said, uh, Dr. Thurman, these songs might have given them a better life, but isn't that a problem because such a life does not exist? In other words, it's just a, it's just a placebo, you know, it's just a, a false hope. And Dr. Thurman, who was easily the smartest man in the room, <laughs> smiled at this young student and he said, sir, if heaven is not real, then truth is not real, then justice is not real, then hope is not real. Because Thurman knew what his ancestors had known and what gave them patience to endure their suffering. They had a living hope that was as real to them as anything that they endured that enabled them to reframe their suffering and eventually even stirred a movement that led to their freedom. So friends, this is why we need artists. This is why we need songwriters and poets. This is why we need artists who promise a day, one day when men will no longer behave like lions, who sing of a day when there will be no more crying or no more death or no more pain, not because it's an opiate, not because it's a placebo, and not because it's a false pie in the sky. You know, the artists point to this and they sing about this and they sculpt about this because it is true. It is true. This is our future, a living hope. And the more real it is to you now, the more you can endure with joy. May it be so for us. Let's pray. Be in the silence here. You could just, just name one thing in the world that is breaking your heart. It could be a very personal thing. It could be a global thing. What is one thing in the world that is breaking your heart right now? Would you name it to God and ask him to make it new? Our Father, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you give us such an amazing vision of hope, a, a new creation that is coming. We thank you that we already taste the beginning of that new creation through Jesus, this resurrection, and through the spirit of the resurrected Jesus that lives in us and in the community of faith. 
We pray that we would be people who let our daily struggles, our daily striving, our daily suffering be reframed in the light of this present, of this future hope, because knowing that our present suffering is not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed. Help us to be people who patiently endure, endure with hope and with joy. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's, uh, let's stand and sing together um, of that day when we will walk out and see our King coming to us uh, and it will be a day of no more death or crying or pain. Let's sing together.